Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the, the opportunity that you've given us this morning to come and to worship you. We pray, God, that you be glorified in all that we do and all that we say this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to have ears to hear and hearts to receive minds that are alert. God, help me this morning. You know the things that are going on in my head, the emotions that are running through my heart. God, I pray that you would help me to, to die to myself. Help me, God, to... To take up my cross this morning. Yes. Yes. Help me, Lord, to, to put you and your word above all that I'm feeling and all that I'm thinking right now. That you would take control of my emotions. That you would take control of my mind and that you would use it for your honor and for your glory and for the edification of your saints. That this morning as the, the gospel message goes forth that your sheep would hear your voice. That they would respond and follow you. Yes. Lord, I become less so that you can become more. Hallelujah. I pray that you move me out of the way. And that only you yes. be glorified. Yeah, and though my family, my, my beloved friends who are sitting here with me this morning are, are praying for me. I pray that even as the message begins, that it would no longer be me they're thinking about or even seeing it would be you, God. And I even ask for forgiveness for, for making anything about me before I began the message. I, I pray, God, that that was not dishonoring to you. And if it was, God, forgive me. We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us begin. Uh, I, I do want to say good morning to uh, the brothers and the sisters and friends and the visitors who are joining us this morning. I'd like to welcome you to RBC on this Lord's Day. As I mentioned the last time that we had a family Sunday, we will be dealing with different texts each time that we, we gather together on these family Sundays. Just real quick, it is such a blessing to have Pastor John back yes. from New York. I appreciate all the text messages of all the different restaurants we were eating at. It was such a blessing. Um, back to the message. So each family Sunday we'll be dealing with different texts. But this family Sunday, we're going to actually take a step back and review a text that we dealt with last week. We want to do that because we want to, to touch on one specific truth that Christ reveals as he's speaking to the religious leaders of that day. Let me say to you, it is a glorious truth. It is a, a God-honoring truth. It's a glorious truth, a glorifying, God-glorifying truth. And it happens to stand as the pinnacle within the doctrines of grace. This truth would be known as, if you're taking notes, definite atonement. It is also known as particular redemption. Limited atonement. Or actual atonement. And the question that is on the table this morning is this. Who did Christ die for? I'll ask the question again. Who did Christ die for? Your response to that question 
may be a lot like the response that I gave when the question was asked to me by my younger brother, Isaiah. He had only been saved for a few months and he was filled with a number of questions. I can remember we were driving home from work one day and my brother and I were talking about different biblical matters and the question was asked to me. I can remember we were on the 58. We had just passed Union and were between Union and Mount Vernon. Do you think that Jesus died for everyone? He asked me. I was shocked that he would ask such a question that was so obvious. What has he been reading? Why would he ask such a heretical question? And my answer was probably a lot like maybe your answer. Of course he died for everyone. How could you even ask that kind of question? And then I went to the scripture that that many of you may be thinking as you heard the question, did Jesus die for everyone? I went to John 3.16. And I said, for God so loved the world, Isaiah, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. There. That should silence the matter. But it didn't because he had a follow up question and his follow up question baffled me just as much as his initial question. His follow up question was this. Then why are there people in hell? Why are there people in hell? Where are you coming up with these questions, these dumb questions? Are you reading the the New World Translation? Boy, what are you reading that would cause you to ask such ridiculous questions? New World Translation is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. People go to hell because people chose to go to hell. They're there for their, by their own free will, Isaiah. God wanted to save them. Isaiah, God even tried to save them, but they didn't want God. And listen, it broke the heart of God because he really wanted to save them, but they just refused him. And then I went back into my bazooka and I loaded a huge one. And I said to him, Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his commands or his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Take that, you young whippersnapper. Did I just say that? And for the time being, that kept him at bay. And because of his respect for me, he did not respond with another question. But by God's grace, there was questions formulating in his mind. And by God's grace, those questions that he asked me that day made me go home and find out where are these questions coming from? Today, the question is being asked again. And it's being asked to you. Did Jesus die for every single person in the world without exception? Or what was the intent of the cross? What was the intention of Christ when he came to this world? And to whom was that intention extended to? Or what's the intent and what is the extent of the cross? Why did Christ come and for whom did he die? Did Jesus come and possibly save or did Jesus come and actually save? 
Did Jesus come and make reconciliation possible? Or did Jesus come and make reconciliation actual through accomplishing the price penalty on the cross? Another question, did Jesus merely make propitiation of the righteous anger of God toward all people potentially possible? Or did he actually satisfy the righteous anger of God toward a distinct group of people? We find the answer to the intent of the cross. We find the answer to the extent of the cross. When we find the answer to the intent of the cross, then we find the answer to the extent of the cross. This morning, we're privileged because we are going to allow Christ to answer that question for us. And as I studied again in in John chapter 10 last week, I began to realize he's answering the question right here. I pray that after you answer, see the answers to these questions, that your approach to the Lord's table becomes increasingly more intimate. I pray that the Lord shows you why as well. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 10. Verse 11 through 18. Why do we stand when we read God's word? We stand out of reverence because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We stand because when the word of God is spoken, God himself is speaking and we stand in awe of God. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, that they will listen to my voice, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my, on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. The heart of the gospel is the very saving life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, we preach Christ and him crucified. As we have stated... The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the highest summit within the doctrines of grace. On the left hand, we have total depravity and unconditional election. And on the right side, we have irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. But at the center of the doctrines of grace stands the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would like to focus our attention on this morning. Again, we have a great privilege from hearing from our Lord on this topic this morning in John chapter 10. It is this passage, if you will, the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus commentating on his own death. 
I'd like to show you five truths this morning. Number one, the person of Christ. Jesus begins in verse number 11 as he identifies who the good shepherd is that enters through the gate. Verse two, the the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them. Verse three, he is also the gate that protects the sheep. Verse nine, and ultimately he is the one that lays down his life for the sheep. That person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking to the crowd. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. If there was any wonder as to who the shepherd was, Jesus makes it very clear that the person in the story who is the good shepherd is none other than he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not just any shepherd. He is the good shepherd. There are many titles that the Lord Jesus carries, but there is perhaps no other title that is more endearing for God than for us to call him a good shepherd. He's perfect. He's faultless. He is superior. He is the great I am. Jesus has identified himself with seven I am's. And each time he is pointing back to the great I am in the book of Exodus. The one who was within the burning bush. That the the bush was burning but it was not consumed. Jesus is saying before the crowd. I am the great I am of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying I am Yahweh. Number two, the death of Christ. As we know who he is, let's see what he has done. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd has come. Again, not just any shepherd, but a good shepherd. What is it about this shepherd that makes him so good? There is much that we could say about what makes him good, but specifically Jesus points to one specific reason. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And by doing so, he saves his sheep. Think about this again. He lays down his life on the cross of Calvary. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus repeats that he lays down his life. It is important for us to recall this, that the life of Christ was not taken. The life of Christ was given. His blood was not spilled. His blood was poured out. The death of Christ was not an accident. The death of Christ was a divine appointment that was predetermined before the foundations of the world. It was for this death that Jesus was foreknown. It was for this death that Jesus was predestined. And it was for this death that Jesus would die for his sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen closely. For the sheep. Jesus said that he came to lay down his life or to be a substitute for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, has a specific intention when he comes to the world. Or, if you were here last week, when he comes to the sheep pen, the world or the sheep pen, if you like, he has come to the sheep pen and he has come to lay down his life for his sheep. Question, 
Has he come to lay down his life for every single sheep within that sheep pen? I'll ask that another way. Did Jesus come into the world with the intention of saving every single person in the world without exception? Someone may say, yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I would respond in a, in a number of different ways. I could go into the 10 different meanings of the word world, cosmos in the Greek, and show you that world doesn't mean all every time you see the word world. It actually means from or out of in reference of people of every tribe, nation and tongue or people from every tribe, nation and tongue, meaning world. I can go into the original Greek for this verse and show you that the Greek translation for John 316 actually reads like this. For God in this manner loved people from every tribe, nation and tongue that he gave his only begotten son that all the believing ones, pas ho pistion. Would believe in him or all the believing ones shall not perish, but have eternal life. I could do all those things, but we could deal with the text as you read it. If so, I would respond by saying when someone quotes the biblical passage of John 3:16, and it is biblical, they should not merely focus on one specific passion or portion passage or portion of that text and forget the rest of it. In this case, people focus on the word world. And don't realize that out of the world, there is a specific groups that group that responds to Christ. How do they respond? By believing. So someone could say, yes, it's for all the world. But who out of the world is actually saved? Those who believe. Jesus is essentially giving a giving us a commentary on this very point, because God did send Christ into this world. But how are people saved? John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is those who believe. It is those who believe that are the ones who are going to be saved. Amen. The Bible does not say that Jesus came into the world to save the entire world. Every single person without exception. If that's the case, then you have universalism. And there's no need for hell. Jesus came to lay down his life for those who believe. And now we're presented with another question, a probing question, which is this. How will they believe? If Jesus came to save those who believe, here's my question to you. How will you believe? How will they, we who are absolutely depraved in our dead sinfulness, unable, unwilling, those who by nature want nothing to do with God, those who by nature will not pursue God on their own. I hope you're listening to me. How will those people choose good if all they want is evil? Or in this case, since we're dealing with a specific passage, how does the blind man who Jesus has just healed make himself see? Or let's deal with the next chapter, Lazarus. How does dead man Lazarus make himself come back to life? I think Jesus is pointing something out to us that is very specific. They are unwilling. They are unable to come to the shepherd on their own. But thanks be to God that the good shepherd comes to them. So how do we believe? 
We are in the sheep pen and the good shepherd begins to do what? He begins to call out his sheep by name. Verse three, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And what do they do? Do they say, no, no, thanks. They respond by coming and then he leads them out. They follow the voice of their shepherd. He comes to the sheep pen that is filled with sheep or the world, if you will. And out of that sheep pen or out of that world, if you will, the shepherd does not say, "Okay, all of you, let's go. Instead, the good shepherd comes to that sheep pen or that world and begins to call out of that world or that sheep pen. Those who are on his mind, on his heart, those whom he has 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 called out of the world. Those whom he has foreknown, those whom he has foreordained or predestined to be his own, foreknown, foreloved from the foundations of the world. And he begins to give them a special kind of love. The sheep respond and he takes a flock to be his own. He begins to call out Mary. Martina, Tony, Isaiah, Philip, Ariana. I could say all of your names. I'm not going to do all that. They are his sheep. They are given to him by who? By the father. Before the foundations of the world, he calls and his sheep who are, are, are listen. He calls and his sheep are given ears to hear. He calls and his sheep are given eyes to see. Because of the sovereign work of God, they respond to, listen to this word, the effectual call of the good shepherd. Effectual call meaning this. He calls and they come. He doesn't call and they say, no thanks. When he calls your name, you come. This is the sovereign work of our sovereign God. Jesus says in verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. These are for whom Christ died. These sheep will never follow a stranger. They will never become attached to a false prophet or a false shepherd. They are the saved ones because God has called them and they have entered through the door. The door. Who is the door? The Lord Jesus Christ. They've entered through Christ. Not some other way. And because they've entered through Christ, they now have life and life more abundantly. Not one drop of the blood of Christ is shed in vain. Not one drop of the blood of Christ was shed in defeat. How could I say such a statement? How could I make such a statement such as the blood of Christ was not shed in vain? The blood of Christ was not shed in defeat. Let me tell you why. Because there is a false gospel that says this. Jesus Christ loves you so much and he died for you. But it's up to you if you want to be saved. He's waiting. He's hoping Can you imagine the kind of weak God that portrays who is sitting up in heaven, twiddling his fingers, hoping that you will respond to his love request? By saying that, you've just made salvation possible, but not actual. You were saying that when Christ was on the cross, he did not actually pay for anyone's sins. He simply made the path available, but it's up to you. To come and get it. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
You were saying that what Christ finished at the cross was not finished because the completion of the atonement is still depending on whether or not you choose with your own free will to follow him. If that's the case, as John MacArthur says, then no one, no one will ever be saved. If salvation depends on you, then no one will ever be saved. Not if you believe what the Bible teaches about your sinfulness and your deadness in sin. Not if you believe what the Bible teaches all over the Bible about your depravity. If the completion of the work of Christ is dependent upon our good choice, then Christ died in vain because we will never make a good choice apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And may it never be. All those for whom Christ purchased on the cross, listen to me, he has received. All for all those for whom Christ died for on the cross, he has paid for their salvation in full. All those for whom Christ died, that work of salvation is finished. The work of Christ has been accomplished. I, I recall John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. He says, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas, those are the twelve. And then he expands his mission and begins to talk about you. And here's what he says in verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. Jesus, again, is praying for those whom the Father has already given him. That's you and I. That is you and I. That we would be there with him to see his glory. When Jesus says in John 1930, it is finished. The mission was finished. Your debt was paid. The price was paid. The mission was accomplished. You have been secured in the hands of God, never to be snatched out. Christ came on a mission. To lay down his life for the sheep. And listen to me. And he did not fail in that mission. He did not fail to save anyone for whom he intended to save. Now if you say he wanted to save you. But you were just too strong. And you're saying about Christ that he failed. That he failed in his mission to save you. You were too strong. You were stronger than Christ. Your sovereignty was stronger than God's sovereignty. No. He did not purchase the entire world only to be shortchanged. He did not uh, purchase the entire world only to be jipped. He did not purchase the entire world only to find out when he stands in heaven. Oh, I didn't actually get everyone I paid for. That's right. Amen. No, Christ came and purchased the salvation for a specific group. His people, his sheep, his elect. And the father imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to their, your and my empty accounts. We had nothing to credit to our account. Christ's perfect life, his perfect death and his perfect sacrifice and the resurrection was credited to our account. So we, when we live, we live the life of Christ. When we die, we die in Christ. And because Christ rose, we rise. You better thank God that he does such a work. He did not fail in that mission. I can remember sitting with a couple that was completely angry with me for teaching this biblically clear doctrinal truth. One man said, well, then we shouldn't even preach to the people sitting in this church. I said, confused. Why? He said, 
Because none of them are going to be saved. And none of them are going to, and, and you don't believe that any of them are going to be saved. You only believe the elect are going to be saved. And, and at least two of my hairs went white that day. My response was, I preached the gospel. God, through that gospel call, calls his sheep. They hear his voice. They respond in repentance and place their faith in Christ alone. And then they're saved. That's right. Amen. Amen. And that, when I said it, he thought that he had me in some kind of trap. And he said, no, but you only believe the elect will be saved. Yes. <laughs> they are the ones who respond in faith and repentance. They are the ones who place their faith in Christ alone because Christ causes them to believe. Yes, I do believe that. But you don't know if they're elect or not. Two other of my white hair or other hairs went white. I'll say this slowly for you. When I preach the gospel, God moves through that message and he calls his sheep. I don't know who is going to respond. God does because he's God and I'm not. So when I preach, as Spurgeon says, I wish I had people in the crowd who had an E stamped on their back. I would just preach to them and it would save me a lot of heartache when I go to the marketplace and they say, no, I don't want to talk to you. Instead, I preach the general message. And the sheep respond. I obey the Great Commission, preach God's word. God, the Holy Spirit, works through the message and changes the hearts of his sheep so that they will re- respond in repentance and faith. Amen. This is the work of God. Yes. This is for his glory. Yes. This is for his glory. It's not on your own good choice, not on your own good merit, not on your own free will. He changes your will so that you will be willing. You, my friend, if you hold to the, the truth or to the false truth that you had something to do with this, then you are still in glory from God. You are still in glory from the one who does the work. And as I've said before, he who does the work gets the glory. Number three. The cost of following Christ. Verse 12 through 14. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, a costly price, more costly than silver and gold. First Corinthians 620 says you are bought with a price. The price was paid in full. It was not a layaway plan in which Christ would have to wait on you to see if you agree to pay the rest of the debt. First Peter 118 says, knowing that you are ransomed from your futile ways, which you inherited from your forefathers, not from perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, you were bought, blood bought. You have been purchased by the good shepherd who laid down his life for you, his sheep. There is not a believer in this place this morning whose life is their own. Let me say that again. 
If you are a believer, if you are one of the sheep, then your life is not your own. What do you do? You spend the rest of your life following the shepherd. The sheep do not spend the rest of their life wandering off. When they do wander off, there is a roaring lion waiting to devour you. And if you wander off, then you're obviously not following the voice of your shepherd. No, the sheep, they lose their voice. And we do not remain where, we, where he found us. He does not call out our name and we stand there and say, okay, we'll see you later. Instead, when he calls, we begin to follow him wherever he goes. The call to follow Christ is a call to lay down your life, as we said last week. We turn our backs on the world. We turn our backs on dead religion. We turn our backs on our own dreams, our own desires, our own pursuits. We lay them down because it is the cost of following Christ. And it is no cost. It is a blessing to lay these lives, these lives down because in laying down our lives, we find true life. In losing our life, we find that which is truly valuable. We will buy the field to find the tre- because we found the treasure that is hidden within it. Yes. Yes. This is what it costs. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow yes. me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Yes. But whoever loses his life for my sake, they will find it. We lay down our lives for this one who laid down his life for us. Oh, and his cost was much greater than ours. What are we giving up? Fame, fortune, things that are fleeting, things that won't last, people that come in and out of our lives, family members. When I'm standing right in front of my true family. No, there is no cost. There is only benefit. There is only blessing. There is only rewards. There is only joy. And yes, it does come with pain. But Christ promises that through that pain, he's with us. And that he'll never leave us. And that he'll never forsake us. Which leads me to number four, the love of Christ. Verse 14, he says to them this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus repeats this as for emphasis and encouragement to the sheep. What he says about the sheep is this. He's the good shepherd and he knows them. He knows them because he owns them. Jesus knows them because he owns them and he's chosen them. He has a special redeeming love for his sheep that goes beyond the general love for mankind. Mark, little Mark Pat pointed out this is called common grace. Common grace is this. You get to live and you're not dead yet. Common grace is this. You get to breathe and you have not suffocated yet. You get to make money and enjoy this creation of God's until he takes you and you die. But there is a special love, a salvific grace. There's a common grace and then there's a saving grace that God gives to his sheep. That he doesn't call to all of the sheep within the sheepfold. That he goes to specific sheep and says, you're mine and I'm giving you a special love because you are about to experience what the good shepherd is really all about. Some of you may say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair that God would do something like that. You don't think so, huh? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have kids? Could you raise your hand? How many of you buy your kids birthday presents And Christmas presents when those times of the season come around. I hope you do. How many of you randomly give gifts? Thank you for this. How many of you randomly give gifts 
to your kids just because they're your kids. I got a question for you. Why don't you buy my kid birthday present? Why don't you buy my kid a Christmas present? Why don't you give him a random present? Your answer is, I already know it. He's not my kid. You want to talk about what's fair? You're not even fair in your own life. And who defines what is fair? You want to talk about what's really fair? You want to talk about what you really deserve? We can do that. A tower fell on the crowd of people in Luke chapter 13. The people came to Jesus and asked, why did this happen? His response was, do you think that they're more guilty of sin than you are? In other words, you should have been under that tower. You better thank God a tower hasn't fallen on you yet. Because that's what you deserve. He says, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise die that kind of a tragic death. You really want what you deserve? Because what we all deserve because of our sin uh, Alyssa and the youth pointed this out. That she had an epiphany the other day. It makes sense to me now. We all deserve sin. Oh, we all deserve death because of our sin. We all deserve death. We deserve nothing good. So the fact that you even get to live in this world, make money, eat the kind of foods that you eat, travel to the places that you travel, that's God's common, common grace on your life, which you don't deserve because of your sin. And God goes a step further to some specific people and says, and you, I'm giving you specific saving grace because I've known you from the foundations of the world. Some people say that doesn't sound fair. They marvel at that. Why would God give his love to some and not to others? Here's the better question. Why would God give his love to anyone? And what is your definition of love? And how do you all of a sudden get to define what love is and what love is not? Are you God? But God is love. Oh, God is also a God of wrath. God is also a God of judgment. And I'll just throw another scripture at you. Romans 9, 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is saying, I'm God and you're not. Deal with it. Paul's response, he anticipated what people might say. Is God unjust? Paul said, you better watch your mouth. You better watch what comes out of your mouth. You're not God. He is. What drives Christ when he's going to the cross? What is it that caused Christ to set his face like flint and endure the pain of the cross? It was for the glory of God. It was perfect obedience. And it was love for his specific sheep. His sheep. Those whom he foreknew and foreloved. You better, when you stand before this table and fellowship with him, you better rejoice at the fact that when he set his face like flint, he had your name on his lips. When he said it is accomplished for and he had all of those who have believed and repented, he had your name on his lips so that when you come in fellowship with him, you are fellowshipping with your good shepherd who knows you and has foreknown you and called you by name. You better rejoice. You better not think about, well, what about auntie so-and-so? Hey, preach the gospel to them and let God be God. Oh, that's hard. I know that. I know that's hard. But you pray for them. You don't know whether they're elect or not. You don't know whether they're one of God's sheep or not. Preach the gospel. 
and let God be God. Let God have mercy on, you, on whom he has mercy. Let God be compassionate to those whom he will be compassionate to. Amen. They respond in repentance and faith. Then glory be to God. He has given them ears to hear and eyes to see. Last and not least, this is because of the sovereignty of Christ. Jesus speaks of the cause and effect of his death. He says, I lay down my life. He lays down his life. And there is a guaranteed effect. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Listen to what he says. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This refers to the other sheep. The Gentile sheep. Look at your neighbor, if you would, just briefly. They are a Gentile sheep. They are the flock that Jesus says, I have others that are not of this fold that I must go to and they will come. Guess who you're sitting around? You're sitting around that flock that Jesus spoke of. I have others. You are the others. And they will come and we will be of one flock. You are them. I am them. And he says, I must. And they will. I must bring them. And guess what? They will come. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock. Notice the language. Not they might, maybe, or possibly. No, they will. No, they will. This is the sovereignty of Christ. He will bring to himself every single person who he died for. And if you are one of his sheep, you will have eternal life and you will be with him forever because he is the good shepherd. He has called you by name. And you have come. Some will say, I will not come. Others will say, we won't come. Some might even be mocking this entire message, thinking, I can do whatever I want to. I'll come when I want to come. You may have even said about others concerning their coming to Christ. They will come when they want to. Or it's up to them to turn their life around. And isn't it funny that you pray for them? That when you pray for them, you don't pray that God helps them make the right decision or to use their will to give up their lives. But you also believe, whether you know it or not, in the sovereignty of God when you pray. Because how do you pray? God change them. God make them see. God open their eyes. Spurgeon said, can God make anyone a Christian? I tell you, yes. For herein rise the power of the gospel. The gospel does not ask for your consent. It amen. takes your consent. Yes. Amen. 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 And you better thank God it took your consent. Or else you'd still be walking in darkness, dead in your sin. Yes. 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 When the gospel is proclaimed, there is a sovereign work that is happening in your heart that you can't control. And it's not tears. It's not the, uh, it, it is a tearing of a stony heart that's being replaced with one of flesh. And you had no choice in that. Before you can even say, I will follow, God has already made you willing in your heart. Amen. Before you could even start taking one step toward Christ, he had already taken a hundred steps toward you. God changed your heart. God gave you a willing heart to choose. He makes you willing. And again, you better thank God he made you willing. Because you would have never came if he did not to the glory of God. Let's finish this passage in John 17 or John 10, 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to take it up. 
and I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He even has sovereignty over his own death. Not only does he have sovereignty over your life, but he has sovereignty over his own death. His own resurrection. He lays down his life and he takes it up again. No one takes it from him. He lays it up, down and he takes it up forevermore. Jim Boyce says this. Jesus did not merely come to make salvation possible, but to actually save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He came to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation possible. He actually turned aside God's wrath for each of his elect people forever. He did not come to he did not come to make reconciliation between man and God possible. He actually reconciled to God those whom the Father had given him. He did not come to merely make atonement for sins possible, but he actually atoned for sins. Praise God. Last quote. O Palmer Robertson. So what is the one death, the death of Christ accomplished? The death has provided a sufficient, a, a sufficient priestly sacrifice. It has accomplished an effective propitiation by the removal of the wrath of God. It has provided a full redemption by the purchase of a people. It has accomplished a genuine reconciliation by the removal of God's enmity toward all who were in Christ. These accomplishments are not hypothetical possibilities, but an actual reality. Directed towards specifically those whom God has purposely set his love on before the foundation of the world. If you've repented, if you've trusted in Christ, then you're saved. Not possibly saved. Not maybe saved. Then you're saved. And you should rejoice because this mystery of Christ knowing you before you were even born. This mystery of God the Father having a love on you before you were even in your mother's womb. Yes. Before you could even live a life of sin, he knew the life of sin you were going to live. And he knew the moment and time when he was going to bring you to himself. Yes. And the moment and time which you would fall on your knees and say, I don't know why I'm feeling this way and I don't understand What's happening on the inside? But I feel like something's changing in me. And God foreknew and predestined that moment when you would belong to him. And you would say, well, why did I go through so much? God's timing is perfect. And we will never know. But what the fact of the matter is, is you are now called out of that sheep pen. And you're hearing the voice of your shepherd this morning. And he's calling you to fellowship with him. When I said... That you should never approach the Lord's table again. That if you repented, believed, and, lay, and are laying down your life for Christ, and you are one of His sheep, He had you on His mind when He was holding that rugged cross and carrying up Golgotha's hill. That He could see you. What would cause a man, if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, what would cause a man who was so beaten, so bruised, so bloody, flesh ripped from his body, what would cause a man to keep taking step after step and holding this cross? And yet when it was held for him by Simon, 
to stand up and keep going. And as he's still going up that hill, barely alive, as he's being nailed to that rugged cross, he's thinking of armies. And he's thinking of Doreen's. And he's thinking of Melissa's and Jojo's. You're on his mind at that moment. And when he's being nailed to that cross and being stripped of all of his clothes, he's calling out for your forgiveness. At the end of that hour or that time, your redemption was accomplished when he said, it is finished. Paid in full. And there will be a day that Gloria does not yet know. There will be a day that Karina does not yet know. She will live her life. He will live his life as a boy, grow to an adolescent. And there will be a time when I will work in their heart. And they would not know that moment. But while I was on the cross, hanging there, I was thinking of Ralph and Rosa. I was thinking of Victoria and Albert. I was thinking of Gilbert, Ophelia. I was thinking of Josie, Johnny. And it pleased the Father that when He brought that blood before the Father, His sacrifice was accepted. And He proved it by raising back to life and saying, Now because I live, you can live. Paid in full. Redemption accomplished. And this morning, redemption celebrated. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's stand.